So today is Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. This is episode number three of the We Be Imagining podcast. My name is Khadija Abdurrahman, and I'm here with my co-host, Salam Mandel. How are you, Alan? I'm good. How are you, Khadija? I'm good. I'm good. We're we're currently recording from New York City, and we have uh, Sarah Roberts here. Are you are you in LA? I'm so in LA that I'm sitting in my car. <laughs> so I'm I'm keeping it very LA for you guys right now. Thank you. Well, I'm so New York that I'm sitting underneath my daughter's loft bed with the podcast equipment that I bought in preparation for the quarantine. This is real. <laughs> Um, so Sarah is an assistant professor in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. She holds a PhD from the School of the University of Illinois. Um, she is an internationally recognized as a leading scholar on the emerging topic of commercial content moderation of social media, or CCM for short, a term she coined to define the field study around the large-scale industrial and for-pay practice of social media, u- media user-generated content adjudication. Her book on commercial content moderation entitled Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media came out in 2019 from Yale University Press. She also served as a consultant to and is featured in the award-winning documentary The Cleaners, which debuted at Sundance in 2018 and aired on PBS in 2018. Um, There's so much to say about you. I really appreciate you taking the time to um, sit in the car and participate in our podcast. (laughs) I appreciate both of you. Thank you. Uh, Before we get into the meat of the conversation, do you want to say a little bit about what quarantine is looking like for you right now? Yeah, um, thanks for that. Um, You know, I feel like uh, probably many of us do, which is that Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with health right now. Um, I'm blessed with shelter. I have my needs met. Um, I live in a, in an economically and racially diverse area of LA. And one thing that has really been hitting me because I can't stay inside. So I step outside a lot into the alley or, um, you know, right outside my my building into the street just to catch some sun and air. One thing that's struck me is that the, the, um, the homeless folks that are in this neighborhood have kind of disappeared. Um, so I've been told that there's been temporary housing put up, but you know, that really worried me. Um, the rhythm of everyday life is noticeably different for everyone. And, uh, you know, um, the absences are noted. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's heavy. I mean, and I think uh, that a lot of us who are involved in like grassroots organizing, it's unclear of like what are the viable tactics to even, right. you know, direct action social justice is usually occupying space, which now is neither is dangerous and not viable. So it's unclear like how do you even hold the powers that be accountable? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's such an unusual circumstance and the the scale and the magnitude of this crisis is so profound and it's so, um, you know, it's both obviously an acute health crisis, but we know that those health issues at a social level are inextricable from the other issues uh, that are at play, which are, again, things like long-term um, inequities long-term structural oppression of people. 
um, the economic, the, the insane economic um, precarity of so many people in a city like Los Angeles, which is predicated on unbelievable wealth, you know, <laughs> like just the, the paradoxes of these, these issues. Now, one thing I will say is I was out the other day and I saw a guy that, um, that is in this neighborhood that I hadn't seen for a few weeks coming through. And I was really happy to see him. He was really happy to see me. We said, Hey, um, checked in from a distance, you know, <laughs> kept a distance <laughs> like you do, but, um, but you know, here we are 2020 people, um, spending their lives on the slice of these issues that, uh, that they've dedicated themselves to. And I think for people such as ourselves who are in community uh, and in our work, striving to make an impact and make things better, when you really feel a sense of overwhelming uh, inequity that you don't know where to tap into to break it, it can be hard. So I had a hard week like a week ago. I really lost it. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't see any reason to, you know, equivocate on that. Um, and uh, it turned out almost every, this was last Thursday. It turns out almost everybody I knew and knew of just kind of fell apart last week, Thursday. Like it was just something where they hit the wall. So I had to kind of step away and I'm trying to figure out how to, um, how to get uh, smart about the interventions because apparently raging out on Twitter isn't going to change the world. I mean, I'm doing my best, but that's not, you know what I'm saying? That, that isn't bringing down capitalism or, um, you know, uh, 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 authoritarian regimes. So here we are. <laughs> No, thank you for being honest. I mean, that's yeah. real. And I mean, I've, I've like pre-plague um, thought a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the examples yeah. that um, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The, the Body Keeps a Score, um, always brings up was after Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, you have a natural disaster, but people just decentralized, started helping each other out, like moving furniture, going to bring people food. Um, and they weren't seeing really high rates of PTSD. But then FEMA came in, the Red Cross, and they said, you know, this is going to be a centralized effort. Everybody needs to just stay home and let us take over it. And that's when people started manifesting with a lot of like depression and externalizing behaviors. Because, you know, when there's an emergency and we feel in danger, it, like triggers that flight fight. And then when you're mm -hmm. immobilized, that's when all of those symptoms become exacerbated. And just to know that there's such profoundly terrible things happening to people that we know and just people who are already marginalized by all the things that you mentioned um, and to be unable to like physically move or do anything about it is just like compounding the crisis multiple times over. But I also don't have the solution. I've had my despair, mm. but I don't, I don't have the solution. Um, that is also really heavy. Um, but I feel like that, you, you know, you just crystallized a phenomenon for probably a lot of listeners and if nothing else, you know, I guess we can see each other and we can validate each other in the pain. So that's something. Um, and then, you know, as a, I'm a professor, as you mentioned, and I kicked off my class yesterday of 40 odd students. And, you know, we have reframed some of our goals for this, this term. And our goals are about um, supporting each other, meeting each other where we are, um, checking in, with ourselves and our classmates, 
um, noticing an absence, noticing when someone needs to step back so you can put a foot forward that time. All of those things are actually front and center for us. They ought to be all the time. So that's like a good lesson, right? <laughs> but um, we're really articulating those things collectively right now in our learning environment. And I did come out of that feeling like, okay, um, when I think about what in interventions are possible in my, in my world, uh, in my immediate lo local community, maybe that this is it. This is the kind of thing where I can give permission to others to speak about what they are going through and we can co-create a space where that's possible. And that's just taking power back from a world that doesn't allow for that. So, you know, you caught me on a day, I'm telling you, I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling really philosophical or something, but I mean, these are really true feelings that, um, that we're having. And, uh, you know, sometimes the interventions are hyper local, like again, we're in quarantine. So at the level of, family members, at the level of the people in the building, um, at the level of the people in the community who live in the streets where, where I live. Um, because again, I, I guess I just can't stop Trump right now. Yeah, no, I think it's real. I mean, when else to be real besides when there's a pandemic? Um, yeah. And the two things that you made me think of is one, I've been, I mean, Maybe I'm biased because I'm really heavy on Twitter as well, but all the mm -hmm. people in higher ed that I've been seeing have really centered the grief and seem to be coming up with either people can take pass fail and not submit any work or um, trying to be really flexible with undergrad mm -hmm. and graduate students, um, mm -hmm. which unfortunately has not, I have five children. And so one of them in particular, middle school, who's doing virtual schooling, um, he gets a checklist every day of an incredible heavy load of assignments um, that seem really detached from the moment we're in. And in defense of the Department of Education in New York City, I think they had like 72 hours to come up with yeah. virtual schooling. And this is unprecedented, but just the amounts of work that's being offloaded onto these children during a crisis just seems very like so disconnected from reality. I even got a notification that um, they're working really hard now to develop online testing platforms. And I'm just like, why? Oh, Lord, no. Why is anybody working on that? That's <laughs> why is the it wrong... anyone's priority? Yeah, that's the wrong direction for sure. Um, uh, you know, here again with uh, what what kids are being asked to do, which of course means what the adults in their lives are being asked to do as well. And I don't need to tell you that um, because I know you're living it right now. Um, you know, here again is where these disparities come out. Like I, I just found out a couple days ago that one of my doctoral students has a computer that's so old, it won't do zoom. You know what I mean? Uh, doctoral mm -hmm. student at a, at UCLA. So what's going on for our kids in LAPD? Um, uh, uh, sorry, LAPD, LAUSD, Jesus, that's a Freudian slip <laughs> from hell, um, in LAUSD, which is an under-resourced, uh, notoriously so under-resourced, you know, public school district. What about kids who don't have internet access at home, don't have computers at home, don't have parents or guardians who can, um, for whatever reason, support that learning environment? the disparities that already, again, were present are going to be so deeply exacerbated here. I, I actually had an interesting conversation, and um, I apologize if we're way off the agenda for, 
for today, but um, I'll just say this no, a little no, bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I was speaking with my colleague yesterday, Safia Noble, whom I'm sure you also know. Yeah, and, I love Safia. Yeah, she's, you know, enough said, she's amazing. Um, and so she and I were talking about um, the context for the university environment, which of course is different for, um, you know, from what the kids at the K-12 uh, level are experiencing. But one thing, you know, a point that a colleague had made to her was, um, and she was kind of reporting out on it, she said, you know, he had, he was taking an issue with, um, I don't want to call it business as usual, because it's not business as usual, but business as usual as possible in terms of teaching and instruction. Because, mm-hmm. you know, his take, which I hadn't fully considered, was, he, he was taking issue with the pass fail piece. And um, his point was, why are we uh, asking professors who should be using their time right now to do research, whether it's scientific, like, you know, bench research, medical research, or other kinds of social and policy research, or humanistic inquiry that just lifts the soul? you know, any and all dimensions of that, where they should be completely consecrated to that work right now, to pushing that um, to to affect change. And so that, you know, do, you know, like quickly adapting a course um, to serve it up to students as customers, he felt was not it. And I hadn't really taken that approach in my class around, you know, I don't look at students as customers, but his point was the neoliberal university does. And so one of the reasons for their scramble to to quickly adapt teaching modes, uh, which of course we have to put an asterisk by because we have to ask how will this look on the other side of the crisis? What will the new demands be on on the instructors? Um, his point was, you know, that that was a real misdirected use of resources, considering what the university is capable of uh, with regard to world change. Um, and so that hit me yesterday afternoon. I was like, whoa, I, I have to think about that one. You know, like, how am I going to address that? Because I do have a responsibility to teach this class. But, um, you know, that was a deep take also. (laughs) So I I think, you know, that's something we can consider as well. But yeah, yeah, let's rush to adapt already flawed, already problematic, already um, uh, divisive mechanisms like high stakes testing. Come on. But I mean, I I, I hear both. I don't know. Both sides. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Could you you just tell us uh, briefly what uh, what your class is and maybe what you're oh. normally hoping students take away from it and then like given the well, current circumstances? I mean, it's kind of, it's it's a good question and I kind of danced around it because, um, uh, because, you know, I've had to question myself how I can adapt to make it have a more meaningful value to my students right now. So I teach, typically when I'm teaching, um, I teach, I might teach doctoral students, but I also teach um, master's students, students at the master's level who've come to do a two-year master's degree in information studies. And typically those are students who want to um, go into kind of traditional librarianship roles in the public libraries or as academic librarians. Um, They may want to work as archivists. So we have quite a significant number of students who do um, uh, traditional or digital community 
or media archival work. We also have students who uh, want to be information professionals, like in a technology context, or who may be knowledge management uh, uh, professionals in a in a context that isn't necessarily um, oriented towards that. So they might be the only person or a small department leading those efforts. So it's a professional degree where students um, are rightly very oriented towards the job market on the other side. Um, you know, and unlike some other very uh, high status and lucrative careers, this tends to not be a, a, a workforce that immediately has uh, highly paid jobs, despite their skill and education on the other side. So there's a lot of anxiety already just on a good day. Um, the course I'm teaching is a course on management and leadership in the information professions, which when taught sort of out of the box is like, you know, get your get your uh, uh, quick, quick and dirty management MBA in 10 weeks. Um, obviously not, right? But we, we endeavor to give the students knowledge and skills that will make them effective in leadership roles and in institutions. Because what happens is even when they don't think they want to be managers, because most of them don't, they're sort of like allergic to the concept, uh, and usually rightly so, the, the fact is that they leave with a master's degree and they go to these institutions and they're immediately swept up in um, in management type roles. So I think the way that I look at this is how do we ethically uh, impart skills to students around these issues while also giving them a breadth of theoretical and you know political concepts to be humane, uh, aware leaders in a context where, you know, things like uh, labor tend to be placed oppositionally to, to management, which is a concern many of them have. So um, that's kind of the context uh, for the course. And, you know, I was even feeling a certain, I, I guess, go, going back to what Khadija said, a certain despair uh, about it or feeling like, well, this doesn't matter at, at a time of crisis. But I think we can find a way to really make it matter, actually, uh, both content wise and again, both um, both in, in terms of the content and in terms of giving the students a place to be every week in community with each other and with me and knowing we're doing that every week, whatever else is going down, you know, we're going to be there 930 a.m. So I'm aware of that kind of, you know, that kind of like regularity and um, space making is feels like a big deal right now. Yeah, structure becomes so important. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think, I mean, kind of what I wanted to say is that I, I think both are true. I've been thinking about this a lot as I yeah. I teach a course for this summer at Cornell Tech um, for the first cohort of undergraduates actually coming to the campus for the Milstein Technology and Humanities Program. I teach a course on oral history theory and practice that was going to be in-person and very workshop-based and now is going to be completely online. Um, and just to anticipate where are the I mean, I guess they're not kids, but the students' headspace is going to be in a few months and kind mm -hmm. of like what is the level of loss that people are experiencing. And just in general, I mean, I think the academy is, you know, kind of a generator for settler colonialism, but it is also <laughs> um, 
a place where I still think there is space to like, mm-hmm. you know, form new types of relationships to kind of, mm-hmm. and I think that like hyper local fabric of relationships and way of organizing each other's time and space is really mm-hmm. important right now. Even for mm-hmm. me, I mean, having the complete loss of childcare and having five kids, 13 and under is super real. And having the ability to do this podcast and kind of get myself out of my immediate surroundings has been like really important to my own mental health. And I hope also like contributes to kind of having a narrative thread to make sense of everything that's happening, not just for me, but like as those of us who are kind of super immersed in this like data policy surveillance Mm. infrastructure Mm. of the web. And then also this Mm. public health epidemic where people are calling for surveillance. Um, So, I mean, I I hear your colleague about neoliberalism, but I also think that there's more of a role for us to play than just being productive. And I think it goes back to the thing about trauma. Like we do need to do something to feel like in our bodies and connected to each other. That's just yeah, my, that, my no, I think you're, I think you're, um, I mean, I think we need to be thinking through these issues, I guess, if nothing else, in a way I've had some time afforded to me to be in my head, um, in, in a different, in a different context or in like in a different way, super intensely. Um, and I think you're right. Um, you know, one of the things that I'll just say about what it means to be in the university to me personally is that, uh, you know, I, this is kind of like a second or third act in my life, having done other things. And I didn't come back to school until my thirties. Um, and I'm in my forties now. And what I found by associating with universities and with academe and with, um, pursuing my own education to the extent that I did was that it afforded me a platform and a voice and a, and a, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, a public or an audience, right. That I could speak to or speak on behalf of, or, um, engage with in a way that in isolation, in sort of a, a smaller life, I couldn't do, even if I had a lot of the same political thought or the same conclusions that I drew, um, although I would say, you know, they've certainly been informed by the work, uh, of the past decade. So I am very conscious that there is an opportunity for me as the person I am, uh, you know, I come from a, a working class background. I'm a white woman. I'm gay. Uh, I'm a woman of size. Let's just say it. It's cool. Um, <laughs> you know, these <laughs> things that kind of make me who I am in the world um are not are not always things that afforded me um the mic you know what i mean like people didn't they weren't they weren't listening and so i have to grasp that opportunity and hold it and then use it responsibly and that's mm-hmm. what the university brings to me and i never for all my you know all my qualms and all of my um uh kind of inside baseball knowledge of the flaws of these institutions. And there are many, um, this is a thing that I never take for granted. I mean, yeah, no, that was, go ahead, Dina. I, I think that's just like a, a perfect point to start talking about what, what you've done with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, 
I think a lot about about information and and um, you talk about okay the 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 printing press was revolutionary because now uh, the dissemination of information really the power goes to the people who are writing and then all of a sudden the internet and the, there becomes such an explosion of content that really now the dissemination of information and the power flows that are related to that really lie in the hands of, of uh, moderators and curators and, and who and what is feeding you information and what information is being displayed. And I think, you know, you were incredibly ahead of the curve on pointing out uh, the fact that we, we basically have built these massive scaled systems of social interaction that produce garbage, right? <laughs> and, and that garbage has to go somewhere. And, you know, we have a long history in, in the construction of cities of, of ignoring our own garbage, right? Mm. And then we recreated that same architecture on the web, right? Where we, we have these massive infrastructural objects that we interact with, but, but have made invisible the process that allows us to live cleanly within them. Um, and, and I think that, that, like, in any crisis, whatever that crisis is, things happen with those systems, right? So like all of a sudden, you know, all the toilets back up with streets and, and we are thanking God for our sanitation workers who are making sure that that, that doesn't continue to happen. Mm. All of a sudden, people are working from home and the content moderation is is actually transitioning to the, the AI models that these company, companies have been talking about forever and we realize, oh wait, no, this, these things don't work. They're terrible. Right. Who's actually right. been taking out the trash this whole time? Right. Um, and and I I think it it would be great if you could talk a little bit about uh, what's happening right now in that in sure. that respect. Yeah. That. Thank you. Um, sure. So uh, first of all, I'll say that you know my knowledge of of what's transpiring right now. It's not really. Um, it's it's sort of like a it's sort of an analysis rather than anyone having called me up to tell me uh, what they're doing within their own firms. But to kind of set the stage for the listeners, um, essentially there is this uh, what I describe as like a patchwork of uh, of human intervention in place on social media platforms and and for the sake of the conversation you know let's talk about the big players the the facebook's the youtube's the uh twitter's um snap uh instagram of course all of the, these kinds of platforms that have uh massive audiences massive reach and massive generation of content uh the 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 context has been pretty much since their inception or the the ideological orientation to the content from the firms has been, we will just solicit everything, essentially. We're going to solicit everything. We're going to basically be a, a, a vacuum cleaner, a shop vac, sucking up everything, um, irrespective of what that anything is. It's going to go into a big, you know, essentially uh, vessel of some sort, which is the platform. And the users on that uh, on the cons on the consumption side will interact with the content, and if there's something wrong with it, they're going to let us know right away. Uh, and when they do let us know, that triggers a whole system internally of review. What users don't realize, because their intervention usually stops where they kind of 
picks through a drop down menu of this, you know, this particular singular piece of content, this image, this post, this one thing in the ocean of all these things has um, disturbed me for the following reason, violence, gore, um, sexual, sexually explicit content, uh, racist content, hate speech, self-harm, uh, et cetera. Uh, their intervention tends to kind of stop at that point where they're kind of selecting from this, this set of menus. But this material then goes somewhere. And that somewhere is somewhere in the world, often not even at the point of origin of the content or where it's been consumed. Um, so if we're thinking about North America and if we're thinking about the United States in particular, um, content that's being generated here for consumption here may very well be uh, sent to someplace like the Philippines uh, or India or someplace really out of sight and out of mind, let's say, for the average person uh, in the North American context to adjudicate and review. And there's so much of this stuff there's so much of it because of this model of sucking up everything and sorting it out on the flip side that um, workers who do this work might see 2,000 of these items a day. I mean, think about that incredible pace and that nonstop flood of material. And it's like they do 2,000 a day. It's not like they get to, you know, inbox zero at the end of the day. You know, it's a constant, persistent flood, um, like a tap that's been turned on. And, um, you know, these processes uh, went unacknowledged for the better part of their existence by the platforms. They really didn't uh, articulate that they had any particular mechanism or system to do this kind of work. Um, most people didn't consider it. And the reason they didn't consider it was because that ecosystem in which they experienced the content on whatever platform it was in question was, um, you know, to their mind and through no fault of their own, quite frankly, just what it was. You know, if I'm on YouTube and I see the videos I see, it must be because those videos are good videos or because those, you know, the, the computerized algorithm knows something about me and knows how to feed me the content that is, uh, that will resonate for me personally. And isn't that nice? Uh, the, the concept doesn't typically be for a user on Facebook or on Instagram or on YouTube to say, I'm seeing this uh, menu of offerings to look at or to experience what is not on offer and why not? You know, to think about that absence, it's just not something mm -hmm. that comes naturally, especially when we're being inundated and flooded by the platform itself with an endless stream of other things. So to ask, well, why isn't this voice here? Or did I, you know, did I miss something that may have been removed for some reason? And what was it? Or does this, does this platform by its mere existence tend to get people to want to submit material that's child sexual exploitation just by its, the virtue of having the platform and the outlet to do so? But I don't see it. So I don't consider that fact, right? And then you take all of that and you put over that analysis, the concept of the content being monetized. In other words, having monetary, financial, economic value to the platforms in terms of using it to solicit more users, to keep users on the platform and engaged because what they're actually doing is selling that attention and that engagement and behavior to their true customers who are, as you both know, 
advertisers. And that's how we got here. Um, and I know in the piece, which notably you wrote, uh, right in the beginning of the pandemic on flow journal, um, digital humanity, social media content moderation and the global tech workforce in the COVID-19 era. I, one of the things that stood out to me was that you said it's in the six figure amount of the people who are kind of the human infrastructure of this content moderation. Could you talk a little bit more about so you, you touched on the scale, but also who are these entry-level employees? Like yes. what, who's what's kind of the demographic of, of that workforce? Yeah, you bet. So it's really hard. You know, I will, um, I will give the caveat that it's really hard to make these assessments because um, the firms themselves are, uh, tend to be quite uh, tight-lipped. And I, I would even characterize it as cagey about who, uh, about whom they employ to do this work and, and why. But essentially uh, because there is such a demand, which is what, you know, which is kind of the, the stage I just set, there's such a demand for the review because of the scale that a massive labor force is needed. And there's not an adequate labor force in just one place. And there's also not an adequate skill set in terms of things like linguistic and cultural and, um, uh, uh, kind of familiarity and knowledge with a particular region or part of the world. So the uh, this this patchwork of kind of getting the labor force has been spread across the globe. The other piece is that content generation and 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 social media is a 24 by 7 industry. So if one part of the world goes to sleep, another part of the world is awake and generating and engaging with content and therefore moderators need to be on the clock. What the firms have done is what so many other industries have done uh, and continue to do, which is to kind of assemble uh, to, to, to assemble a, an architecture of contracts and subcontracts through third-party firms, um, which has the effect of, of a couple things. It has the effect of providing uh, access to large labor pools, uh, usually of uh, workers who have some level of precarity. So we can think of like, you know, um, staffing companies that are in these spaces mm-hmm. who uh, can build up a quick labor force for a company that wants to outsource some aspect of its, uh, of its service. But also there's this other effect, which is a distancing. And that distancing is both geographic. So if we think about firms based in Silicon Valley who rely on labor in the Philippines, we're talking about the other side of the world and culturally and demographically a very different place, um, politically as well. Um, So there's that distance. There's also the distance of them not having to really consider those people as full-on employees of their firm. So there's a, a certain distance, distancing of responsibility for well-being um, or working conditions. Uh, now, firms have told me in many ways what they do to support the workers in these environments. But, you know, that, that infrastructural choice of uh, outsourcing and, and geographic and social distancing, it's just a phenomenon that will create a... Uh, a sense of less responsibility for those workers. And we've seen it in other industries, for example, the the textile industry, which has its manufacturing all over the world, 
very much outside of the markets where it sells its materials. And then when a factory collapses in some place like Bangladesh, uh, apparently can reasonably claim that they didn't even know their garments were being produced there until they were taken out of the rubble and the, the labels were found, right? So if we think about the way that social media firms have used this global labor pool to get up to their six-figure numbers, and just a, a note about that, the way I think, you know, saying six figures is, is fairly low because that's anything from 100,000 to 999,000. Um, but I try to err on the low side because it's hard to get numbers. But if we just look at like the top handful of companies, we know right off the bat that Facebook and um, and Google, Google's YouTube properties specifically, have like right there like forty thousand easy right there, and that's just two two platforms. <laughs> so you can see how we quickly get up to a hundred thousand at any given time. Um, but one of the other you know, quote, quotey finger benefits here to firms that we can't miss is the relative cheapness. And I do mean cheapness as in cheapening of labor in other parts of the world, vis-a-vis what they would be required to pay in um, their own locales. So, you know, what, what occurs is a system of these third-party firms constantly trying to undercut and underbid each other, going lower and lower, um, thereby cheapening and lowering the cost of the work and lowering the value and potential uh, remuneration to the, the worker. And uh, that's, a, that's a race to the bottom. And could you say, like, why? I mean, it seems terrible to have to do content moderation from home, but at the same time, this seems like something that could have easily been brought into people's homes. And given the lack of compassion from these parent companies like Google and um, Facebook, why why has COVID nineteen impacted content moderation? Why move to to automation? Well, you know, here's where this this globality of the um, of the processes and of the industry comes into play. When we first heard an announcement uh, from Facebook that they would be, quote unquote, sending workers home, I had uh, I had read that and I found that interesting. And I was sort of immediately able to triangulate that with another announcement that had come from the Philippines and Manila, the Metro Manila era, area in particular, about um, full on quarantine going into place there. So it was almost like their hand was probably forced by the global circumstance of the pandemic and how governments in these places where they had large scale moderation operations were responding impacted those operations. Uh, in other words, you know, if Manila shuts down, what choice do the firms that rely on labor from the Philippines have? Uh, but quote unquote, sending their workers home. Now, to your mm -hmm. point of like, why, why weren't they already working from home? Um, I mean, I think that's a good question. The first thing to say is that there are plenty of people who do do this work from home, and they might do it through um, a couple of different contexts. One obvious one would be to be doing this kind of work through um, digital piecework, micro labor websites like Amazon Mechanical Turk and many, many others. Mm -hmm. So there are people who do that. But for these large scale, um, you know, triple A kinds of social media firms, that 
is not their preferred model. And I think the simple reason or the simple answer to that is because their mechanisms of employee surveillance and control are broken in that model. So if the workers are going to a call center environment that's, you know, highly sterile, highly secure, you can't get into these places without, you know, security badges, you have to leave everything in lockers. If anybody's ever worked at a call center who's listening, they will recognize that as also a feature of call center work. Typically, you can't bring anything onto the floor except like your company water bottle, you know what I mean? And um you, the expectation is that you be in there without the ability um, to really record any of the data, to really uh, make a record of what you're doing, in, in essence, and also with supervisors all around you who um, who might be in real time kind of monitoring the decisions you're making. There might be metrics that are in play about um, re- reviewing a certain number of your calls as in your choices that you've made and deciding whether or not uh, those were good calls and then having uh, repercussions around that. So all of those kinds of surveillance and control of labor and of workers is broken by sending people home. And Mm -hmm. um, that is a real feature of how the industry works right now. It's a, it's a, it's a, a chain of, um, surveillance and control of workers to the end of having uniform decisions. Yes, absolutely. Because you don't want an individual to user to start questioning, well, did I get a good moderator this time or a bad one? Right. They want it to be uniform and, and appear actually as if it's computationally being decided. Um, but also uh, because they want to control the choices users make that might be, uh, in, in resistance, quite frankly, to, uh, to policies or to decisions they disagree with or to, you know, have the freedom um, to a certain extent of being at home and outside that watchful eye um, and of the pressure of the peer pressure of being in the, the call center environment where they might do something <laughs> that the firms don't want them to do. And I, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, a kind of like techno Taylorism aspect to it. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we really are down to, you know, motion study level of granularity, which you know is 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 nonsense at the end of the day. I mean, that is just um, as it was then and continues to be. It is a way to render humans um, powerless uh, without agency. Um, especially when you add in uh, the rapidity of the of the work, again, just as in an assembly line context with uh, with what went on with Taylorism and 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 so on. In these, by the way, this is the kind of stuff I teach in my management class. <laughs> so now we're back we're back to that, right? Uh, so so that does matter. Um, so yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, uh, what might be possible outside the confines of these very strictly controlled environments where um, there's a narrowly defined set of options and choices. That is not something that most firms want to explore. So when we look at them, quote unquote, again, sending people home, we must look with a skeptical eye uh, about why that's happening 
And again, here is where I, and I, and I appreciate you bringing up the piece in, in flow journal, and maybe we can um, link to that or share that too, because this is where I For talk sure. about, yeah, this is where I talk about how the fissures of such a system, the cracks and fissures might become somewhat uh, visible or tangible to other people, regular people who are users. Like, why is this happening? I need to know more. Um, and then you go seeking information and you find out there's this entire ecosystem predicated on uh, on the globalization of taking out the trash, as you said at the top of the conversation. Yeah, I think I think we see how quickly it happens. Um, uh, you know, there's this there's this line you quoted in your book where you were interviewing someone and uh, where they said, like, if you open a hole in the Internet, people will immediately <laughs> fill it with shit. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was fantastic, and then mm-hmm. Zoom, which was a a uh, a mm-hmm. not a kind of social platform; it was a business facing platform. Rapidly became a social platform. It was a hole mm-hmm. that was opened on the internet, and then mm-hmm. you have this spate of Zoom bombings, and and they've they've applied some some technological band aids to, to prevent that. But but it was just encapsulated in in the span of really a week exactly what what you talk about right as soon as you open these spaces people immediately fill them with just the most horrific things purely designed to evoke that kind of response um and and we noticed that that trash has been there all along we've just uh, had the privilege of not having to see it i mean i think i think you said it all and here again is where you know bridging the earlier part of our conversation to this one where this rush to push into these new spaces without having fully vetted them and thought through the repercussions comes into play. And we know that what happens when we do those kinds of moves is that the most vulnerable people are the ones that we're asking um, to be put on the line, right? The The most vulnerable people, the people who already experience marginalization and oppression, Um, on a daily basis are the ones who are on the receiving end. One of the fascinating, and by fascinating, I mean nauseating facets of this Zoom bombing phenomenon that I was uh, watching myself unfold a couple days ago on Twitter was that a woman who had experienced it um, during her doctoral defense, of all things. um, Yeah, which is just, I mean, talk about trash, you know, just, just gross. Um, a, a black woman actually, of course, was who experienced it. And on the one hand, you know, a friend of mine actually directed me to the thread. He was like, look at this. Of course, all the responses are saying she's lying. All the responses are from trolls saying she's lying. And I was like, oh, Jesus. So I went over there and I checked it out. And sure enough, you know, this woman who has brought the receipts, who's just talking about her own experience and is like in pain you know, like, I can't believe on this occasion that was supposed to celebrate this achievement for me, for my family, for my community, um, was sullied in this way. You know, it's the replies to it are all like, on the one hand, you're lying. And on the other hand, you know, a bunch of, um, racists high-fiving each other. And I was like, well, which is it, you guys, do you want to take credit for it? Or do you want to deny it? Because you got to do one or the other. You can't do both. I'm just going to call foul on that. (laughs) It's got to be one or the other, but you can't even get your story straight. Um, So there's just no, 
I mean, there's just no uh, courage of convictions among these folks. It's just about trashing people. And it's, um, wow, I mean, it blows me away. And so obviously pushing people into these, these contexts that are unproven and untested, and not only are unproven and untested, but are found to have really, um, have had really bad like policies and uh, EULAs and uh, data collection policies and, and procedures and also be technologically um, uh, weak and, and open to being manipulated easily because of the way that the, the platforms have been designed by people who don't think about the kind of precarity that comes from being online as a marginalized person uh, in their design practice. Um, it yields pretty messed up results. <laughs> well, could you flesh that out a little more for people who may not be immersed in kind of the social implications of AI? I mean, why I could see for someone who is not familiar with this whole infrastructure, thinking that maybe automation addresses a lot of the issues that you raise with the human infrastructure. Now we don't have to expose people yeah. to all this horrific volume of trash. Maybe if we could just get the right algorithm, we could protect all of all parties for a lower cost. Like what, what have been the, the consequences yeah. that you've seen like in the last couple of weeks? I mean, so I think you're giving voice to a reasonable question that an average person is not silly or foolish for having. Um, but I would put it to you this way, Khadija, we all want to wave a magic wand you know, we all want to snap our fingers or click our heels and have something amazing happen. But the truth is that um, there are very few silver bullets in this world. And so what when we talk about AI systems in the context of something like content moderation, what do what are we really talking about? Well, first of all, we're talking about systems and tools that use a rule set to affect an outcome through the process of really a decision tree or a flowchart like logic, if then, right? If X is present, then execute Y. Um, if X is not present, you know, go to line 10. You know what I mean? Like go back to the start mm -hmm. um, or, or take no action or step out or whatever. And so these, it's really like a flowchart logic, which in another way to put it is, is an abstraction. It's an abstraction. It's a rule set that is, is, searching for X through, through a process of abstraction, it's just, that's just the mathematical basis for these computational tools that are algorithmic and uh, al algorithmic in their, in their, uh, in their, in their uh, composition. So that's the first thing. So who actually builds the algorithm and what, uh, what is that stake for, for the person or parties who build the algorithm, whether it's at an individual level or, you know, organizationally. Um, well, just as I sort of explained with the issue with Zoom, these are probably systems that aren't being built by um, a cross-section of humanity where the concerns of many different voices and people will be considered early on in the design process. In fact, it may be the very opposite, that it's a very small slice demographically and otherwise of people who are engaged in building the tool and their blind spots and their inability to see and foresee and to design for 
the many uh, means that there are all kinds of flaws in these systems and they're only as good as what they were designed to do. So there's an old adage in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the computers are only going to ask, are only going to do what you ask them to do. And if you don't know to ask them to do certain things, or you ask them to do things in a way that um, is fundamentally flawed for some or many people, then you are going to have an outcome that's a, that's problematic. Now, can that happen with human moderators? Absolutely, it does. You know, humans are humans. Humans are also following a rule set being dictated to them by the firms. They have little agency, but they do have some. They have more than machines. And one thing that you can do with a human is you can ask that that person, why did you take the decision you made? You can't ask the algorithm that. It can't give you a, a logic. It can't spit back to you, well, nine times out of 10, I would decide this way, but on the 10th time, I decided it this way. It's not going to do that. The algorithm is never going to resist. It's never going to push back or speak back to power. It's never going to go to a supervisor and say, I think we need to revise our policy around this. None of those things will happen. So although my primary concern and my my mode of intervention into this topic has always been through the lens of worker welfare, of low status workers and undervalued workers is, is my new way to describe that. Um, and I want to see them delivered from this environment where they have to engage with garbage and bad stuff all the time as a precondition of their work. I'm very concerned about turning that immense power over to things that are we cannot audit, things we cannot identify, things that are not built with accountability in mind, um, and that that be considered a new normal. Because what will happen with these tools, which tend to be very blunt instruments, is that they will always invariably um, overreach on some things, but the, you know, the algorithm that doesn't exist will never pick up the thing that it's not looking for. So it's kind of like the worst of both worlds in a way. Oh, thank you. I just feel like it's important to to voice that point of view because it's inevitably yeah. what comes up when people like largely, I mean, as Elon pointed out, you're one of the first people kind of making legible these systems. But I think that largely the public is not aware. Um, and I just saw like anecdotally people on my Facebook kind of asking what happened and why are certain things getting flagged, particularly related yeah. to COVID on Facebook and people just thinking that it was part of the conspiracy. Um and, you know, just not knowing. Yeah, I mean, again, and, and I bet I know what you did, which is you um, did a lot of informing. I linked your article. Yeah, cool. I mean, that was in part why I wanted to make that uh, piece, because um, I had a feeling that we were going to need it. And this is a really good opportunity. And I, again, I really thank you for this opportunity to talk with you today because it is a really good opportunity for us to reignite a robust public debate about the capacities that these platforms have to shape our informational environment. And you brought up just the, the issue of COVID information. Um, and I wanna bring this, this, this notion of how this material has been monetized. Um, so that there is often an economic upside to circulating very much uh, dubious, false, untrue 
information, but information that might be salacious or might feed uh, a particular agenda or might be attractive to people who are already predisposed to believing in conspiracy and so on and so forth. And um, so, you know, it's not like people are just putting information out into these pipes out of the goodness of their heart. There is this monetary and other kind of a variety of other kinds of incentives, I would say political incentives and others to um, to populate are are now are like default informational sources, which are unfortunately these massive undemocratic commercial platforms with with utter BS, to put it frankly, um, and this one thin line of protection that is very much flawed and very much a problematic system and very much puts people at risk who are doing the work has now been decimated. And that's probably not a good thing either. <laughs> so here we are. So, uh, I mean, maybe that's a good point to ask. What's an example of, of what should happen now, right? We are in this, yeah. this kind of uh, incredible moment where like history feels like it's happening very quickly. And right, like the Overton window feels massive and, and incredible things and terrible things are all happening. Uh, all at once. Um, and so, you know, there's, the question is, right, like, what is the alternative to, you know, where we take these systems and we use the AI, but we over-police everything so that, like, it still feels safe, but nothing really gets said, um, or or just, like, an unmoderated internet full of, full of filth? Yeah. Um. I guess one thing I would say, it's it's a little tough to make this case when we're in such an acute crisis, but I think we have to remember, you know, the, the insights of someone like Naomi Klein, who points out that um, the fomentation and, uh, and uh, extension of crisis is in and of itself a political tool. So, you know, I try to remember that when I feel like, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't think about doing something like that now because... Um, maybe it's just at these very times that we must think uh, more imaginatively and think bigger. So I would say that one thing that uh, I often ruminate on is the fact that we we get you know we get kind of backed into the corner of thinking um, about our immediate context, our immediate informational context, let's say, uh, around what are the platforms that exist right now and how do they operate and how could we do some reform work around that. Whereas this is a great moment for all of us to collectively recall that these systems have really been in place for a decade and a half, in some cases a little mm. longer, but they've really held the, the public space, the public sphere captive in the way they have for probably less than a decade at this point. That's actually not a long time in the context of, of our collective history, which to me offers an opening to say, if that's not a long time, and if it's not a foregone conclusion that these kinds of uh, platforms and the way that they're currently comprised be uh, immutable, what else could we imagine differently, um, collectively, and without limit um, in terms of, well, this is how it is now, so we have to work from there. 
In other words, I, I, I like to take a step back from the question of how do we resolve the current conundrum with the platforms to say, what might we imagine completely differently? One, uh, you know, that's a big, big picture kind of concept. But one thing that I would say just in the immediate moment that people can do is return to a certain level of expertise and trust in their information source. So uh, in the context of COVID, I think some voices have emerged in the medical community of people who are sharing information. They uh, have provided their credentials. I was watching a YouTube video like two days ago where before the doctor gave um, like a 35 minute lecture on the uh, disease process that COVID causes internally. I don't recommend that if you're feeling any kind of way today, like skip that. But you know, like, of course I watched it because what the hell. But before he launched off into his, um, you know, pretty ad hoc talk, he had a whiteboard that he drew on. um, He held up his diplomas in a frame. (laughs) And he was like, this is me. I am this dude. I have these degrees. I am this kind of surgeon. I am a real person in the medical community. Here are the limits of my expertise because I'm this kind of surgeon and not that kind of surgeon. That having been said, I can interpolate uh, this information for a lay audience and that's what I'm going to do. And it was really, Mm -hmm. really deep to me that he was kind of flexing his credentials by way of saying, stop listening to Alex Jones selling snake oil. Stop listening to politicians from Washington who want to minimize this crisis on the, on the back of an election year and who are willing to put people's lives on the line to do it. I mean, the cynicism of that blows my mind. Stop listening to your racist uncle who you already don't listen to because he's a mess. Why are you, what the hell does that guy know about COVID? You see what I'm saying? So this to me, like in the absence of being able to completely reform the system, these are the things that we can do or encourage each other to do in our communities, like return to expertise, Um, you know, information intermediaries who can help you vet things. The librarians who are hanging out on Twitter will help you vet these sources. Is this a credible source? Somebody tell me why or why not? Um, uh, triangulating out information that you're hearing. Um, mutual aid and mutual information sharing. I remember back in 2011, uh, I was involved in in the protests in the state of Wisconsin when it was um, being expropriated by the Koch brothers. You may remember that it preceded the uh, the uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And mm-hmm. one of the first things to go up in the occupied state capitol building was a library. I was like, wow, you know, it was a child, a first first aid station, child care station and a library. I mean, talk about lessons to live by. We have to inform each other because it might just be that the state and I mean, capital S state, and their their co-conspirators in industry don't always, I'm sorry to say, folks, have our best interests at heart at all times. <laughs> they just don't. That's that's what, to me, is being put into relief by this crisis. No, I definitely hear that, and especially in terms of mis- and disinformation right now. I mean, I think even my elderly aunt sent me something that I think they said it was a physician from John Hopkins who said, if you hold your breath for 60 seconds, yeah. you don't have COVID. Um, 
And there's just like a real need that people are relying on each other to vet this kind of information that could cost someone their life. Um, but also, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I think it's in Sophia Noble's book, Algorithm of the Oppressed, where she talks about the rise of Google and the parallel decrease in librarians. And so that's, part of me yep. still feels like, how do we bring this to scale, though? Is it Do we nationalize these platforms? Do we create our own platforms? Because not everybody... the National Emergency Library, Khadija. I don't know if you saw that news story. No, I didn't. Tell me about it. Uh, let me just pull it up because I don't want to get it wrong. But uh, the Internet Archive is now offering 1.4 million books for online, like ebooks. Um, it's unclear if this is legal or not, but I don't know that now is the time that anyone should be like, trying to figure that out. I think it's a wonderful resource. But again, it, it comes into the, the thing we talked about earlier, which is there's, there's plenty of information available, right? Like knowing there's 1.4 million books is great, but that's a little useless without a librarian, right? Like, the act mm -hmm. of curation is so important. And right now the curation is happening by algorithms or by people who probably don't have your best interests. That's right. And so when we think about alternative models, um, like let's say, let's just narrow it to say alternative models in the online space. One thing that I've argued for and that um, that is kind of an artifact, let's say, of my early experience online on the social internet in the early 90s is the kind of spaces where what we call content moderation would actually be rebranded or re rebirthed as what, what you just said, curation, expertise, um, a very conscious act of information sorting that is auditable and, and visible to users and when asked can uh, have an explanation offered as to why it was done. Um, this is a different kind of model that probably doesn't scale to 2 billion users, but I might say perhaps that's a good thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Scale? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, I don't maybe want to go to a party with two billion people. I don't know about you. Like, like to keep it more at like ten. Depends. Are they know? six feet apart? What kind of party? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, maybe we all need some social distancing online right now. I don't know. Um, so one example like, of that model that that maybe this is just one example, and maybe there are flaws with it that I haven't considered. But there is a website I love. It got purchased by the New York Times a couple of years ago called The Wire Cutter, where I I don't choose what I'm going to buy anymore. I just like look at whatever The Wire Cutter says. They present why they think it's the best choice, their methodology, whatever. Like, oh, I guess I need I need like uh, a new wireless mouse. I just go to The Wire Cutter and I just I read the methodology. I read their argument and then I, it's curated. Going on Amazon and like sorting by reviews or like any of these like curation methods that I would use other than that have been so gamed right. versus like, this is literally a dude who's like, here's why you should trust me. And then he writes about his expertise with wireless mice. And you're like, okay, you know what? <laughs> That's right. And it's really a, a, I mean, when we're talking about scale, you know, the one review that you read that's exhaustive and where the expertise is on display has a greater impact on your purchasing choice than um, an Amazon page with 10,000 reviews 
you know, some percentage of which you consider bogus, some percentage of which, which are one stars because the person says they ordered the wrong thing and couldn't return it. So it's like, you know, you know, all this kind of nonsense, um, which is, you know, like a signal to noise ratio problem at the end of the day. Um, and again, which has this understated, but thing that we ought to bring to the forefront uh, aspect to it of the monetization, where the impetus might be other than, than that, but the presence of the potentiality of monetization in the mix is always going to make um, those kinds of aggregated information sources somewhat suspect, or at least having a different agenda than those that don't, or that can articulate um, their principles and their, you know, to, to borrow a term from feminism, positionality uh, on, on where they're coming from. And so I think, um, you know, another way I put this too is like, we've had a slow f food movement over the past 15 mm -hmm. years. Uh, well, it's been much longer than that, but let's say like farm to table got really hip about 15 years ago. Slow food started in the seventies. Um, but as you would expect, because it's a slow food movement, it slowly you know, rolled out, slowly took hold and it advocated for a certain kind of practice around, um, around the, uh, not only the consumption, but I would say the production of the food we eat toward the aim of a better, you know, personal health, but also better community health, a better global health, a better planetary health, a better health for animals that we consume, a better life for the people who um, harvest the, the produce and the, and the food that we consume, et cetera. And so there was this, you know, ripple effect throughout that entire production chain and that life cycle that um, rejected some of the things that had come to industrialize the production and consumption of food. And so to a certain extent, I think we're ripe and ready for a slow social media movement, a slow information movement, a movement that yeah, prioritizes different things, right? Rather than immediacy and speed and consumption. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that it's I'm thinking about the party with 10 people and kind of what does that look like? Um, yeah. One of the things that came to, came to mind is that we think a lot about this with oral histories and content management systems. Have you ever heard mm. of uh, Mukutu? Yes, sure have. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like just, you know, because it's also not just about how about the search function, but how do we hold the information that we have? And that's like a grassroots project. Um looking at indigenous sovereignty over data and people part of it is that it bars access to certain people. You have to like earn the right to access different portions of the platform. I don't know. I, you know, I hope that in the chaos of the moment that we're in, that we don't, that there's not just power consolidated in the triple a brands of tech, but also right. into the people. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure exactly what it will look like, but I think you're right about the pace that it has to be slow. Cause the other, you may mention garbage in garbage out. And I was also thinking about move fast and break things, which is the other mantra. Oh my God, so, right? <laughs> yeah. It's um, like move fast and break other people's things. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't come, don't come over here and break my stuff. Don't come over here and disrupt me. I don't like disruption. I don't know about you guys, but I have enough of that. So, um, you know, here's and and bringing up the this platform that has a different organizational 
uh, concept from the outset about how we should access and again, consume information is really powerful because even that is, we, we ought to understand that those things are all up for consideration. You know, open access as it's constituted doesn't work the same or mean the same in all communities. Um, you know, again, you brought up the, the, the notion of indigenous communities, many of which have already experienced a first wave of so-called open access, which was called their indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing and artifacts and um, cultural production was ripped off by museums, you know, put into museums, stolen, um, probably out of, you know, out of context, materials that might've been sacred or um, held in trust by only certain members of the community are suddenly, you know, sitting on a, a behind a glass case for all to see. And so there's a, there's a, a, you know, that notion of open openness around that information gets um, reconstituted in a digital context all the time when that material is then digitized. So I think that's another great example of how um, maybe the concept shouldn't necessarily even be open access, but it should be community control of informational flow. Right? No, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like that's one that I thought about, um, thought about for many years about how rather than, you know, the model being one of like a, just a, um, you know, faucet flowing, maybe it should be that the community's power should be in controlling the valve, the flow and the valve, the speed, the, the, you know, time, the output, who can access. So um, maybe, as you said, rather than this being a moment of utter consolidation of power, which of course we know is happening, maybe in the space that we can hold together, we can come together and find those places of resistance that we already hold and figure out what to do. And I mean, I just have to say, I feel more hopeful now than I did when I got on the call with you and I was feeling really depressed. So thank you. <laughs> well, I also want to be mindful of your time as we approach the hour and 15 minute mark. But yeah. that, that makes I always feel more hopeful when we think about these things being relational. I mean, I think that yeah. that's what's lost when it's made illegible, like the the content moderation side of using these platforms. But also, I think that's where the hope is, too. Right. Because who's developing, who's creating, who's consuming this content without the relationships? There's not much to monetize. So maybe. I mean, I'm 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 tentatively optimistic, but uh, I mean, you know. that's that's probably the smart the smart spot to be in, you know, where we we don't give up the hope that we can hold, but we also keep eye on what's going on around us. And I guess that's the best we might be able to do at a given moment. For sure. And I guess I from my my perspective, I just accept that the grief will come in waves. I mean, I don't think that there's a real, there's no, there's no uniformity of emotion in the midst of this. I mean, I think it's hard to, I think we just have to be aware and kind of hold it together, as you said. But as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to sit in your car (laughs) to be able to record this. And also, I like to ask people at the end, is there any um, thing that you're reading or listening to or watching that you'd like to recommend and share with people? It can be on topic or off. It doesn't matter. Um, oh God, you know, I just read this book and it's not available in English yet, but it's called Consent and it's by a woman named, um, Vanessa Sprangora, who is a, her name is Vanessa Sprangora. 
she's French. And um, it's a book about, um, uh, it's a memoir that she wrote about uh, her experience as a young woman in an inappropriate relationship with a literary figure in France. And it, um, it like just blew me away with its frankness and its rawness. And it's also um, writing as a, let me put it to you like this. It took me, it, it hit me as a total manifestation of how writing can be an act of taking back your own power. Mm. And uh, that really blew me away with it because it's a very, it's very like, it is very simply written just in regular language that you would use to speak, but the words are so powerfully chosen and the story is so intensely hers that she's taken back from this literary person who would write about her as an underage young child, essentially, that he was um, sexually abusing. So that's something that I've just finished reading and I've talked about it on Twitter and I imagine it will come to an English language audience. Um, But for anybody who reads French, they might want to pick it up as well. Um, And then I've been watching a lot of, um, uh, I watched Babylon Berlin, which was a really wild ride um, as well. Yeah. Um, And a very political story about, how um, Nazism took hold uh, in the interwar period in Germany. So, you know, I'm keeping it light over here. (laughs) Yeah, a little Weimar Republic fun, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about, actually, honest to God, I'm thinking about buying myself um, a Nintendo Switch Lite so I can play Animal Crossing. So I would also recommend that because I've been watching it played and it looks like a blast. So (laughs) that's where I'm at today. That sounds like my living room. I've also I been. Bet. Yeah, no, my kids. I, I, I've. I actually was really strict on screen time pre pre COVID, but uh, mm-hmm. now everybody gets their own screen um, <laughs> because survival. There's seven of us in a two bedroom, so I just mm-hmm. this mm. hour is made possible by iPad. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Your corporate sponsor. <laughs> Venmo um, her at Khadija. <laughs> well, actually, my cash up has too much kids, so people can send me money there. Um, there you go. We should probably the, set up a Patreon. Yes, <laughs> right on. Accepting cash up. Right on. Yeah, we need to upgrade. Cool. But the last, the piece that I am most recently thinking about is I read an essay in the latest Paris Review by Sena Ahmad called "Let's Play Dead," and it's about Henry VIII repeatedly killing his wife, but she keeps yeah. keeps surviving and keeps being reincarnated. Oh, and wow. it just seemed so like an answer to a lot of despair that I've been feeling, like her her refusal to be murdered just over oh, and over wow. and over again, and his like disappointment and frustration at all his attempts to execute her and she just keeps like reforming um oh and my just, god that was very i'm cathartic. gonna check that out i'm gonna check that out yeah that's what we have to do um keep rising i guess right yeah um elon what about you um there was a really good essay in Texas Monthly about how this this regional supermarket prepared for the pandemic really well. It's it's called the inside story of how HEB planned for the pandemic. Uh, 
I don't know. It's it's mostly just interviews with people who work there, but it's really well reported. And mm. it seems like they both really care about their employees and their customer base. And, and they really have been thinking ahead. And it feels very different from almost every story you read about a corporation with like, you know, just in time manufacturing, meaning the whole economy is very fragile, all of these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas like this company seemed to have made a series of correct decisions. And like, that's very rare. And I think should be commended when it happens. So mm. uh, would definitely pass that on. I also took apart that receipt printer you gave me, and it's now uh, printing on a mm. loop of printer paper. Just like I can have it print over itself. I'll send you a video. It's, it's nonsense, but it's it's been an enjoyable little project. Can we link to this? Can we link to this stuff somehow? Cool. All right. Yeah. yeah this so will all be very... in the show notes. Yeah, we have very extensive show notes. So any of the articles that you mentioned, et cetera, we'll have timestamped and linked. And um, it should be up soon. Do you have any final comments? But this is great. Thank you. This is like a 90 minutes um, of your life. I appreciate it. I want to just say, well, I just want to extend my thanks, first of all, um, to your family members um, <laughs> for giving you up for a bit. Uh, I want to thank both of you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's really an honor to have this kind of conversation at this time. So I'm, I want to express my gratitude and thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, you thank guys, you. I'll talk to you. I'll see you online, y'all. <laughs> right. yes, I'll definitely send you the episode when it's up. Thanks. Thank you.